we seem aligned. He seems to understand why we're here. And I tell him the proposal is there and the budget lays out how we arrived at the number, uh, but that we would um, be so grateful if he would make this happen by providing an investment of $110 million. And then I, I don't know what happened in terms of my vital organs when I threw it in my mouth, but it was probably something like a state of shock. But he, he goes like this. That's about what I was thinking. <laughs> Welcome back to One Visit Away with your host, Kevin Fitzpatrick. This show focuses on true stories of philanthropy in order to understand what it takes to succeed in major gift fundraising. Listen to these stories and you'll realize you're just one visit away from a transformational experience for your benefactors and your organization. If you've listened to this podcast for more than 10 seconds, you know that my entire goal is to get you to schedule more visits. Most major gift fundraisers fail in this industry because they do not do the difficult, scary work of scheduling visits with the right people consistently. The majority of my success in major gifts came from constantly seeking to become as effective as possible at scheduling visits. I read tons of sales books, watched YouTube videos from sales experts, and studied Jerry Pandas' materials on the matter. On top of that, I practiced. The things I learned from experts gave me the confidence to actually make the calls. Today, I have a great resource that I highly recommend you download. Greg Warner from MarketSmart, this episode's sponsor, has put together a guide to help you schedule more visits. It's titled, Top 10 Tips for Landing More Meetings. Not only does Greg run a company that enables major gift fundraisers to be more effective, but he is a successful entrepreneur that has scheduled countless meetings and been on the receiving end of many people trying to schedule meetings with him. He knows a thing or two about this subject and provides 10 great tips, starting with a quote from someone you know I talk about on this podcast all the time, Jerry Panis. Greg is the real deal, and this guide will help you schedule more visits. Go download it now at imarketsmart.com forward slash more meetings. That's imarketsmart.com forward slash more meetings. The bonus tip, number 11, is my personal favorite. Let me know what you think. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the One Visit Away podcast. This episode is an absolute treat. Jim Langley, our guest this week, uh, is uh, a giant in the fundraising world, and this episode does not disappoint. You can check out his website, Langley Innovations, if you want to know more about Jim and his work, but he founded that organization, and I'm just reading a little bit from his bio. He's pioneered a number of practices that have been emulated by hundreds of institutions of higher learning. The knowledge he acquired from conceiving and conducting three path-breaking campaigns at three major institutions and the insight he gleaned from decades of research on donor behavior has been shared in five books, dozens of articles, hundreds of blog posts, and scores of seminars and workshops. He is one of the uh, most highly respected uh, leaders in the world of philanthropy, and you're going to learn a ton in this episode. I left it blown away by his stories and the wisdom that he shared, and I know you will feel the same. So, uh, before we get to Jim, just a quick update for all of you who have been uh, following along on the path to me coming out with my first product, the online course. If you follow me on LinkedIn, you've seen I have uh, revealed the name of the course. It is called Major Gift Millions. And then the tagline is Close Big Gifts, Crush Your Goals, Love Your Job. Um, this is an area I've just seen such a huge need for. So many people I come across uh, just don't have the clearly defined path of what do I need to do to be successful in this line of work. So this course I'm putting together is going to have everything that I teach my clients from A to Z of how do you go from nothing to eventually raising millions of dollars for your organization. So um, the original like founding members group of 20 that I'm putting through it is that group is already... Um, those seats are taken. Um, if you're in that group, you know, I, I should have the link available in about a week for you to actually get registered for it. But once that group goes through, 
Um, probably in about six weeks from now, it's going to be open for just general registration. So you'll see more about that. Uh, but stay tuned for more information about Major Gift Millions. And I look forward to seeing uh, what it does for you and your career. But anyway, without further ado, here is the one and only Jim Langley. Well, welcome to One Visit Away, Jim. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. So if you could tell everybody a little bit about yourself. You're one of I'll really brief intro. Uh, I think pretty much everybody who listens to my podcast or spent any time on LinkedIn or fundraising has heard of you before because you're one of I would I mean, if you're in anywhere involved in raising money, the name Jim Langley is probably one of about five that, uh, you know, everybody knows of. So if you could just tell everybody a little bit about your background and uh, what you do now. Sure. Thank you so much. Yeah. I don't know what's uh, relevant or germane or what would be <laughs> helpful to people, but um, I came from a very um, literary family, not highly educated, but my uh, parents began their careers as Shakespearean actors. I always cite that because hmm. having the uh, privilege of growing up with hearing Shakespeare being recited and rehearsed in the living room, getting ready for plays was uh, was such a singular kind of experience. I, I didn't particularly enjoy it at the time. I thought, what on earth are they doing? But then you realize those words get in your head and the psychology of Shakespeare gets inside mm. your head. His way of, of seeing the world, of even interpreting villains is incredibly important. So uh, I hope it doesn't sound stuffy, but that uh, Shakespeare is a profound influence on my life. His his psychological orientation um, affected me in many, many ways. So I went to college as a veteran uh, on the GI Bill. What did I study? English literature. Who did I gravitate to? <clears throat> the great sort of poets uh, who I also think are the great thinkers. Um, and I was very influenced by them by major historical figures who I thought represented grace grace under pressure, people who had sort of risen to their own, who had come from modest means or backgrounds that would not have predicted uh, their greatness. And we've got one in front of us right now in Ukraine, right? So I want to learn more about him. There's somebody, a uh, comedian, uh, won the equivalent of, of Dancing with the Stars in Ukraine years ago. Uh, boy, but when circumstances changed and we needed a leader, they needed a leader. He became one. He has stood up to the challenge. So I was very interested in both great thinkers um, and great leaders, people who under tremendous pressure when the consequences were enormous, stepped up to those challenges and um, was so lucky to have the GI Bill, which allowed me to be like a kid in a candy store with my education. And I did a ton of writing while I was in college, did a lot of freelance writing. And that was also very influential. So when I started my career, I started on the communication side. But my first job in um, higher education was at Miami, Oxford, Ohio, and it was in the communication side. And it was from there that I first started to think about moving into fundraising. So communication, history, um, historical context, very aware of democracy, where the United States was in the evolution of its democracy. And I think that's always something that we should think about when we talk about philanthropy, because those two are intertwined. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a president who I began to write speeches for who started to encourage me to get into fundraising. And when he started suggesting it, my inner thought was like hell, uh, because I thought it was about arm twisting. And he was the one that planted the seed. He said, no, Jim, he said, people are philanthropic. They want to give to make a difference. Fundraising isn't about talking people into something they don't want to do. It's figuring out what they do want to do and finding the outlet for it. And I started to go, well, and then of course, when I started putting my toe in fundraising waters and I started meeting people, quite frankly, I didn't know existed. 
remarkably constructive, kind, <laughs> uh, grateful people. I was just uh, awestruck that, that they existed and that I had and continue to have the opportunity to work with them. Wow. Okay, so I already have... 5,000 questions. Um, <laughs> what, uh, what branch of the military did you serve in? I was in the Army, and I went in and during the Vietnam period. My brother was in Vietnam when I went in, and um, but I it was in the last year of the draft, and I got a low draft number. So I thought, well, it was my duty, so I volunteered. And I, I knew I would be drafted, but I, I like the symbolism of volunteering. I thought it was my obligation. And so I went into the army and they put me into a missile unit and put me in Germany. So I was a cold warrior. And my job was I had a top secret clearance because I was surveying coordinates, missile sites, um, should the Soviets at the time come across what they thought would happen, the Czechoslovakian planes. Uh, They thought if the Soviets came that way, they would have to if they came in massive numbers. And our job was to delay them for about 48 hours until the 82nd Airborne could come over and take them on. So uh, we had, and no one knew at the time, we had tactical nukes. That's why we had top secret clearance. Yeah. Wow. So I had weighty responsibility at 20 years of old. I'm 20 years of age. I'm in in Germany. Got weighty responsibility. And so you enlisted right after you graduated from high school then? Is that right? I moved furniture for two years. It came from a family where I didn't think about going to, to college. I mean, that yeah. never occurred to me because um, I you know, didn't think about having the money. The notion of, of debt it just was alien. Like people go into right. debt, right? Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't right. What? So, so uh, you know, what, what do you do is you go, well, I just get a job. Um, and then I got married at uh, t- age 20, right? So in some ways, the, the army is a real turning point because then I get the GI Bill and that plants a seed that, wow, I can afford to educate myself and I can do that without going into debt. Man, that's incredible. Okay, yeah. so what, what was more uh, stressful? Uh, standing by ready to launch missiles or... Uh, uh, asking for particular gifts. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Well, different kinds of stressors, you know, the, the responsibility of, of laying down coordinates that make missiles accurate is huge because lives are at stake. And, and we've all read about um, artillery mistakes. This is a form of artillery that, that cost lives. So, you know, one takes that seriously, but then one has um, all kinds of checks and balances in the system that, that checked over and over and over again. The work you've done is checked before someone pulls the trigger. So um, the other thing to, you know, to your question is I learned because to this day I would have, if, if I lost my wallet, let's say, you know, I met you for lunch and, and I forgot to bring my wallet mm-hmm. and I had promised to take you out to lunch. I'd be so embarrassed to ask you for money. I, I couldn't couldn't say could could you give me yeah, and I'll pay you back. I swear mm-hmm. I would be uh, there'd be a pit in my stomach. But what mm-hmm. I learned maybe from from the study of leaders and the background in acting is Jim, you got a job to do. It isn't about you, Jim Langley. You know, you, if you're a vice president at Georgia Tech or Georgetown or UCCA, you got a job to do. You have a role to play. You have a leadership role to play. So get into that role, and it isn't about this other guy. I just yeah. inhabited a different place. Mm-hmm. And so we'll talk about it later, but the largest gift I ever asked for was $110 million. Wow. Now, a guy who pushed, <laughs> you know, moved furniture for two years before he went in the Army mm-hmm. is all of a sudden in front of a billionaire, and I did ask. I made the ask, right? There was yeah. a proposal in front of him, but I thought duty – demanded that I formally request that amount of money. I had the chancellor of the university with me, but I thought. Yes. So so let's just jump in right there. Let's, uh, if you want to tell us that story from, from start to end, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. So this is um, about 1998. So right before uh, what I did was to look up what is $110 million worth today. (laughs) Right. 
Because, you know, we say 110, you forget that was that was a while ago. For yeah. about 160 to 170 million dollars today. So you can imagine at the time, I think the largest gift I had been a party to before that was maybe 20, it could have been 30 million dollars because there was a lot of big gifts at UC San Diego that came in that were just stunning. You know, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, regardless of if it's 110 million or 170 million, both are uh, larger numbers than most of us have uh, oh. <laughs> encountered. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you, we, we try to, uh, we're going in to, to talk about a new engineering school. So this is UC San Diego. It's a brand new engineering school. The, the donor is Erwin Jacobs, who's magnificent. And, um, you know, sort of they are like the de Medici's of San Diego. The, the, they've given away billions and billions of dollars. So the first thing I want to say is, you know, celebrate the donor. Uh, it should always be about the donor. It should always be about insight about the donor. But, you know, we have a role to play in going through this process in engineering a process that yields an outcome that the donor is satisfied with and feels very good about as well, Right. So, um, you know, one struggles about that meeting coming up and everyone says, um, you know, in planning for it, well, it's about uh, $100, $110 million when we budget. So it's not just a number pulled out of the air. When we budget what it's going to take to launch this school, it's a kind of a department in some sort of science and tech division, some multidisciplinary unit. This is a young public university without you know, particular disciplinary strengths because it started in an interdisciplinary way. We're costing it out. We're trying to get, okay, $110 million. And of course, now you put that in a proposal, you have a budget um, and he, he takes the meeting, but you know, talk about your heart and your throat because um, you, you've got to say that, right. You've got to say, this is why you're here. And is it going to be a, an affront? Uh, later, I'll tell you about when a donor just laughed in my face about the money, the amount I put in front of him. Um, so I already had that experience. And, you know, you don't want to do anything that causes this person to feel uh, disrespected or that you're being outrageous um, in what you're coming forward with. And he hasn't done anything like that yet. He goes on to do that kind of giving over and over and over again, but he hasn't done it yet. But of course, he spun off a company. Uh, he was a professor at UCSD in its early days. He spins off a company that we now know of as uh, Qualcomm. It uses CDMA technology, which came out of the Navy. Uh, so he's got his origin is in UCSD, even though he's not an alumnus. So we assume, you know, there's a lot there. And we assume that in building an engineering school, um, it's going to provide workforce and knowledge that has a direct bearing on the future of his company, right? So we're fairly confident strategically. But <laughs> $110 million, right? <laughs> so it's San Diego. So where do we meet in his house? It's the same house he's been in for years and years and years. So even when he mm -hmm. was a professor... Just wow. like um, Warren uh, um, Buffett. Buffett, yeah, he's he's very much a rooted man, very mm. you know, uh, mensch, a good soul. Uh, <clears throat> so there he is, and he takes us out on the patio. It has this gorgeous view of uh, mm. San Diego area because it's up on a plateau, right? So yes, yeah. it's San Diego, right? So you're sitting outside around lunchtime in a beautiful mm. setting. <clears throat> Uh, the chancellor also a good man, but a little tentative about asking for money. So yeah. I know what my role is. And we have this conversation and, um, you know, the warm up would go through the motions. And so it, it reaches that point where I figure, okay, this is, we seem aligned. He seems to understand why we're here. And I tell him the proposals there and the budget lays out how we arrived at the number. Um, but that we would, um, be so grateful if he would make this happen by providing an investment of $110 million. And then I, I don't know what happened in terms of my vital organs in my <laughs> mouth, but it was probably something like a state of shock. But he, he goes like this. 
That's about what I was thinking. <laughs> and now this is the hard part. Now this is the hard part. It, you thought it was hard getting the words out of your mouth. Now you have to sit there and act like that happens every day, right? Well, I mean, right. Yeah. Said, well, oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> Chancellor says, well, my goodness, that's wonderful. But you know what you want to do is leap up and scream, run around right. in circles, do a happy dance. Uh, you, you just want to go, I just, something happened. And, and you know, I mean, I know this is, is selfish, but it's honest. Mm. You know your career has been transformed at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. You, you've just you've just had somebody commit to a hundred and ten million dollar gift at a at a public university. It's about 30, 32 years of age at the time before many Ivy League schools have gotten a hundred million dollar gift. This is an early. You, you know, something has just happened that people are going to attribute to you fairly or unfairly. Right. And, you you know, you want to call everybody, you know, or ever met and say, you, do you know what happened? So it's just um, an ecstatic moment, right? It's it's thrilling. It's thrilling for um, to to know someone can be that generous. It's thrilling to know what can happen. It's thrilling personally, right? I mean, it's just thrilling at every level. But here is my favorite part of the story: is after he commits to it, and we're just you know, full of admiration and glee. He takes us inside his house. He says, I want to show you something before you go. And he show, uh, I'm going to get a little choked up here. Um, he shows us the very modest home um, that he was born in, in Massachusetts. He, he, he shows us where he began. He shares the journey. He, he knows the symbolism of what he just did. So, um, you know, to see that kind of, uh, that's about what I was thinking, uh, that, that he has been hugely successful and hugely philanthropic, uh, that remains rooted, um, accessible, um, not beyond people, um, and didn't forget where he came from. In fact, remembered where he came from at that moment when it was at the beginning of a profound philanthropic journey. He had been generous up to that point, but that was a leap forward. And he was given a series of gifts at $100 million or larger. So, I mean, <clears throat> at the end of your days, when you think about all the things that you're privileged to have been a part of, to have seen, right? It's got to be in there. Um, it's got to be in there. And uh, it did. It caused people to to sort of take notice of UC saying, what? This young public university? And it started commanding gifts of 30, 40, 50 million dollars. Uh, I won't get into that story unless you want me to, but it was situational in many ways. It was the right place at the right time with the boom in um, science, computer science, bioengineering, um, boom. And it had it had spun off the knowledge generated by its research had spun off most of the local companies. So it was like, whoa, synergy, boom. <laughs> it, it was like being in Florence during the Renaissance. <laughs> That's why I compare them to the De Medici's. So uh, just spectacular. But then years after that, I, I got courted by top flight universities, private institutions in the East, where I would literally, because of those gifts coming in, I would get calls saying, the president wants to meet you of, and I won't tell you all of them, the president wants to meet you. Not a search firm, not, not that they want to put you through a beauty contest, but all of a sudden some word had gotten out that something's happening and this guy's at the center of it. And uh, I, I had this other heady moment of starting being co courted by uh, very well-known institutions. The president would love to meet you. Oh, you know, so here's this uh, Irish Catholic kid uh, who moved furniture for two years after high school. <laughs> All of a sudden, yeah, by uh, the elite institutions. That's awesome. So th this is a uh, mostly unhelpful comment, but I always thought it was funny in it's like at the end or the forward of one of Jerry Panis's books. He he talks about how someone described to him, this is going to be the arc of your career. 
And it was something like, who's Jerry Panis? <laughs> Somebody get me Jerry Panis. Yeah, right. That's right. Then we need a ju- we need a young Jerry Panis. Right. <laughs> and then finally, who's Jerry Panis? Yeah, that's exactly so, it. You, well, uh, and then, of course, you get, you know, what's what's wonderful is you get discovered by different generations, right? So you think, okay, mm-hmm. you know, you're of a time, you're of a place, or you're even of the United States of America. And all of a so you go through these different iterations and feel a little bit like um, Tony Bennett, right? <laughs> you got rediscovered by different generations. Uh, oh, that Tony Bennett, that guy's, you know, he can sing. He's got some soul. That man's an artist. So, you know, different. So it's it's just, I can't tell you how out of body thrilling it is to have a young person come up to me and go, are you? <laughs> I heard, I read, somebody told me. We, and and my colleagues of um, similar ages or younger say, we all say the same thing. When somebody reaches out to you who you've never met before and knows you, you, you go, well, am I not the luckiest person who ever lived? And somehow I've gotten to be known to be valued by people I've never met. It's just yeah. like pinch yourself happy. Yeah, it's awesome. So about how old were you at the time that that $110 million gift came through? Of uh, 47. So I was at Georgetown. I was a young vice president, <clears throat> very young looking. I know that because when I uh, went to one of the first event and there was a buffet line, a woman turned around and said, what's your major? Asked me what my major was. I was 37. Um, and I was a vice president. And so anytime I went out representing Georgia Tech, they would look disappointed. And they go, I go, what? I thought they were going to send the vice president. That, that, that's me. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm there to, from 37 to about 45-ish. And so it's about uh, 47 maybe when that um, comes in. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's somewhere around there. It's clearly mid-career, but it's, a, it's an accelerant. And again... It's an, it's an accelerant because of the, the donors that I fall in with. It's just, you know, right time, right place. Yes, I worked hard. I did my homework. I I held myself to high standards. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to play humble pie here. But, you know, it all depends on where you parachute in, right? I mean, you, I could have been in, I don't know, Guam. It wouldn't have been as... as uh, as uh, productive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, even that though, like you, do you happen to recall, I know you're reaching way down into your memory reserves, but do you happen to recall his previous largest gift before you asked for that 110 or like some kind of range? Or... It's in the millions. Right. But it was, it was nowhere. Nowhere. I mean, what you asked for was, you know, 10 to 30 times higher. Nowhere. Nowhere. Exactly. So, so this is what I will uh, explicitly give you credit for is someone could have someone could have walked into that exact same visit, a hundred percent of the same circumstances as you. But when they went in to ask for the big gift, they might have gone from, hey, his previous largest gift is five million dollars. Let's do a big stretch and ask him for 10 million. That happens all the time. And I've, um, and I've certainly done that. Right. Yeah. So I've done that. So, so, so there's there's a certain level of uh, boldness that's required to uh, just yeah put that gigantic number out there and see what happens. Well, I would say that, but I would also say a budget helps, right? It, it ha- helps to know you didn't pull that number out of the air. You're trying to capitalize on an initiative that's been budgeted, and therefore, um, and you're you know you're you're offering to put his name on it in perpetuity. And so you also say, what does it take not only to launch it, but for it to be excellent? And that's often a case I made to donors if if we got into negotiating the price is, wait a second, we want it to be excellent. Your name is on it in perpetuity. We don't want it to be just a mediocre school. So think about that from your own perspective. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, maybe this leads us into you mentioned the time you asked for a gift where someone laughed in your face. Right. Well, now you'll see the why the tension between the two is so strong, right? So, 
everything you just said sort of proved to to be true in this instance. So again, Vice President Georgia Tech, young man. Um, uh, and so this, I think, may have been my first million dollar ask. And uh, it's a sustainability initiative. And it's um, at over a lunch. And the person is a um, magnate from the um, textile business who started to realize the importance of sustainability, right? He started realizing that business is using up a lot of water and it's not sustainable either from an environmental point of view or from an industrial point of view. Um, so he became a champion of sustainability, almost uh you know, midlife uh, profound change where he goes from being a tough-minded industrialist to somebody who goes, wait a second, we have to think in broader terms. So he's got all the earmarks of the lead gift donor for a sustainability initiative. So I've done my homework. Uh, I've worked with him. He and I have a good rapport. I invite him out to lunch. Um, and I think I telegraph. I usually do, almost always do. Telegraph, you know, I'd love to talk to you about launching this initiative and the role you could play in it. I don't believe in ambush asks. Uh, so we have a nice lunch and it's getting toward the end. I'm in, the, I'm in Atlanta and there is a way of doing things in Atlanta. You, you socialize and you bring up business at the end. You don't rush into business, right? So uh, we're toward the end of the meal. And, uh, and I just remember, so I'm working up to that point. I'm laying down my predicates. You know, you've played this role. You've provided the leadership. We are now ready to do what you've advocated <clears throat> to launch this initiative. The symbolism of your gift and the reality of your gift will be critical to giving confidence to, to the initiative. I lay down all the predicates. So, um, you know, we would truly appreciate if you would commit uh, to the initial $1 million. And I remember several things because he's he's uh, finicky throughout the meal about getting the right, he's got iced tea and he's <laughs> finicky about getting the right balance of sugar yes. and lemon in the iced tea. He keeps sipping and he wants to get it <laughs> right. So he's doing this, right? As I'm talking, he's doing the stirring of the tea. <laughs> As I get right to my sort of crescendo, He's lifting his almost perfectly composed iced tea to his lips. And when the million dollar gets um, replaced, <laughs> he's just taken his first sip and he goes, <laughs> and he's got to swallow before he goes, <laughs> uh, like it's the most ridiculous thing he's ever heard. And, and, and then he starts to laugh. <laughs> and then it goes hysterical, tee hee hee hee. <clears throat> like the most absurd thing he's ever heard in his life. Now, it may have lasted, I don't know, 18 seconds, but in psychic time, it was four and a half years. It was dramatic. It, it, it was being in an automobile accident because time slowed down. You couldn't understand what was happening to you, but you knew it was disastrous. And um, <clears throat> I couldn't even remember, like an accident, how I got out of it. I can't remember how the meeting ended because you're right. Because now you're in a state of shock and somehow you just fumble out of it. And, and um, so for, I think for, you and I had a bit of an exchange on this. So you may remember this for about 14 months. I avoided every time he comes to an event, I move to the other side of the room. It's like that magnet phenomenon, one pole repelling the other. I avoid it. I'm young. I don't know what happened. I'm embarrassed. I, did, I don't know what to, what I did, what I didn't do. <clears throat> I'm just embarrassed because I felt shamed. And um, <clears throat> so it's just awful, right? And, and later we can talk about what I would do today if that happened. Um, but, you know, with little experience, putting that number out, I think, for the first time, and getting that reaction just left me feeling deeply ashamed. But here's the punchline. About 14 months later, unannounced, he walks into my office. 14 months. <clears throat> Sits down and I have two chairs in front of my desk. It's like a campaign style desk. I remember certain moments in my career like snapshots. <clears throat> Sits down and says, uh, Jim, I think I can do that million dollars. 
<laughs> but what happened is this. So back to your point is this is why this, there's no easy answers in our business. Mm. <clears throat> he had never given more than $50,000. He was a brand yeah. new philanthropist. Mm-hmm. So he went from sort of, you know, making this statement about we need to make this business and we need to make our lives and our community and our region more sustainable. <clears throat> he was not philanthropic before that. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, you know, midlife he's becoming and he's only giving away modest sums. Then somebody comes in and jumps him up 20 times to your point. Right. And he's not ready for it. Yeah. It takes him 14 months to talk himself into it. It, As you know, it doesn't matter how much money you have. There are people that are below the poverty line that say, I'm lucky and I can give. And there are people who have billions and say, I can't afford it. Yeah. So you got to understand the state of that person's psychology. So it takes him 14 months to sort of go, I can, I should. Yeah. And And he does it, right? So, so. Um, you know, always, I would say my advice is do your homework. If you have a leadership gift person, I can tell you many times where we had pegged the person as being the most obvious leadership gift um, leader, the person who we should ask if we didn't get the initiative would be in trouble, who didn't always accept the leadership role at first ask. But you laid out the reason why they were the leaders, right? You, you've advocated. You're respected. People will look to your example. <clears throat> so, um, you know, I did my homework. My ask was a good ask. It, it well-framed. Um, it, it just now, knowing what I know now, I would have realized, okay, here's the risk. You're jumping them up 20 times. <clears throat> Be prepared for that and then follow up. You know, you need time. Um, lay lay out the logic, or or to say, tell me why you're reacting that way. What can I learn from why this seems absurd to you? And there's nothing with that. You know, just okay. Uh, so you, you think this is the silliest thing you ever heard? Tell me why. Hang in and always try to learn as much as you can. And then you know, don't ever be ashamed of doing your best work. Never be ashamed of putting forward your best effort. That, that took courage, right? So I could have done a better job of bucking myself up. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, but all, and, and I would always say, put a number on the table because it is about expectation. Don't put a range. And, and the only thing I would add to that is a number should be rooted in a budget, not pulled out of the air. Right. For sure. So yeah, man, there's, there's so much gold there. Um, one thing okay so i think just to i think you would agree with me on something i've realized more and more in my career is that we are terrible at reading what someone's response means to an ask so it's like you ask somebody for a million dollars they they almost spit out their tea we're like oh we're really good at reading people that means they're not considering this at all. Vice, you know, or in a different situation, we ask somebody for a million dollars and they say, oh, yeah, I'm, I will definitely consider that. That seems very reasonable. I'm excited about it. And they come back and give us $5,000. Both of those things happen. And, and we just, you can't trust our interpretation of someone's reaction to mean the, the particular outcome. So, so I think that's, yeah. And, and I mean, just the, I, I love this idea that, and so because of that, it's like you asked him for the gift. You had, you thought there was a less than 1% chance <laughs> this million dollar gift was going to happen based off his response. But exactly what you said, sometimes, yeah, people, it takes people time to go from, hey, my largest gift is $50,000 to, understanding that they're the type of person that does give million dollar gifts and sometimes us simply asking them for it is sort of the necessary step for them to take that seriously so you're yeah even if somebody uh spits their tea out 
it's still a good ask. Um, that's right. If, um, you did your job. Yeah. Exactly. That's right, Kevin. You did your job. And that's what you have to keep saying. Is you, Just like I said, I go in. I've got a job to do. It isn't about you, Jim. I've got a job to do. I'm in a leadership position. I've been entrusted with this role. I've got a job. You know, Do it well. Prepare for it. Do as much homework as you can. Be as honest as you can, as, as, mm-hmm. uh, as authentic as you can. If it doesn't work, you did your job. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, I... I'm going to ask you another question and then we can get some more stories, but I'm, I'm curious about your perspective on this. Before we, before we began recording, you mentioned your Boy Scout troop leader, layered man love. Yes. He not only has the manliest name in existence, <laughs> but as you described, uh, made Clint Eastwood look like a sissy, I think is uh-huh. what you described. So, my question is, with that as an intro, you've described how budgets are important, and that's 100% agree, but in the budget-making process, there's a certain level of courage it takes to... Like, two people could get together, and let's say, just for simplicity's sake, uh, an organization's current budget is a million dollars a year. and in the planning process, someone says, well, let's increase it to $1,050,000. And and another person says, well, let's increase it to $10 million. Oh, yeah. There's a certain level of everyone can have the same ability. Everyone yeah. could have the same techniques and the skills. But one person believes that the $110 million ask is possible um how much of that like believing that we can achieve this do you think is crucial to success and then related to that what what experiences in your childhood and maybe growing up led you to like i i could just tell like i know without even asking you you believe certain things are possible that a lot of other people do not what do you attribute that to Oh, boy, you just hit me hard with that one. Um, mm. I, I attribute it to um, proving that that was the case, that over and over again throughout my formative years, throughout the early stage of my career, being met with people who said it isn't possible. Every, every, everything that people know me for, every career attribute, uh, was rooted in someone saying it isn't possible. We've done it before and it won't work. Um, so that's like, um, you t- even to this day, at my age, you tell me that, and something goes inside that says, like hell. Let's prove it one more time. But told me recently, I look like Clint Eastwood, but, you know, I think when I get mad, I do look like Clint Eastwood. It's like, We've done that before, and I go into Clint Eastwood, and I'm like, all right, all right, come on now. You know, this is one of the great sort of flaws, um, sin I would even use, uh, because we tried it once and it didn't work, it it won't work. For goodness sake, people, Uh, success is about trying over and over and over and over again, and success, it comes out of, you know, setback after setback after setback, it's persistence. In one gift I raised, we had a naming um, a donor named a business school, brand new business school, again, at UC San Diego. And it never given anything close to that. And uh, it was in the $25, $30 million range. There were some details about how it was paid. So, but clearly over $30 million today. <clears throat> never given anything like that. So no sooner is the gift announced and everybody in fundraising in San Diego calls me and goes, how on earth did you do that? We all made a run at him. The guy like threw us out by the, you know, uh, by our ear. He was incredibly tough. He was, how on earth did you get that much from that guy? I said, 19 visits over two years. And, And very often he said, all right, meeting's over. See ya. But he also said, 
early on that he wanted to do something to make his grandchildren proud. So I kept reminding him of that. So somewhere early in my life, you know, where you're met with your earliest disappointment, your earliest struggle, it can go way back. And something you say, or who knows, maybe I give myself too credit. Maybe it's something bigger than, than me. And maybe, you know, one reason why I think I'm sort of deeply spiritual is um, um, somehow out of the worst circumstances, um, a, a path came forward, enough of a ray of a hope that I said, all right, let's give it a try. Um, and even when um, I met was met with my biggest disappointments, I now look back and say, oh, that would have been disastrous if that dream came true. I didn't want to get in fundraising. That's not where I saw myself. I thought I'd be the next great writer. It's not, you know, it's like fundraising. Oh, come on. I got a bigger destiny than that. Um, now I look back on, on, you know, or look at where I am now, having the time of my life, feeling like I'm the luckiest guy in the world. So I, I don't know how to answer it, Kevin, other than to say, just hope that something inside of you says, like hell, I'm going to grind it out one more time. I did remember a boyhood memory where I was being taught how to play football. My father didn't like sports. So I was playing with, I think their names with the boys were named Cosgroves, and they were like a rowdy bunch. teaching us how to play football, and all he did was say, here's a goal line. And he said, the key is to get the the ball across the goal line. He said, but if you're tackled, you're down. And I don't know what that meant. So here I am, I'm amazing, right? And I'm playing with the Cosgroves boys and I get the ball. And so I run with the ball and they tackle me. And there's about three of them sitting on me. But I remember the father saying, if you cross the goal line, you score. So I'm crawling on my hands and knees with three Cosgrove boys on top of me, trying to get to the goal line. And the father is laughing like he can't this kid won't give up. So all I want to say is, um, if you don't know me and just think I'm genial and easygoing, there was an early indication of personality. <laughs> yes. Yes. And man, I, th- I think that's so, I think that's so gold because I, I, I tell people all the time, you know, like there are things I'm sure you teach your clients and, you know, best practices and ways you should approach things. And I a hundred percent agree with those things. And we should, we should learn those things, but there's something about, uh, when you are just determined, I am getting across that goal line. It's going to be ugly. People are going to be laughing at you. You look like an idiot, because you're not abiding by the rules at all. But like, yeah. if you've got that, you're going to get across that goal line. That's you'll right. figure out the things you need to learn along the way, and right. you'll get better at it over time. But yeah. I, I love that. I love that image of uh, the young Jim Langley playing with the Cosgroves. Uh. Oh yeah, just <laughs> where's the damn goal? Line? Now you may get across a different goal line than you imagined. You may get across it in a different way. But if you learn to propel yourself on your elbows, you're going to do fine. That's awesome. So, man, we're we're coming uh, close to our time here. Any final? Uh, is there a final story you'd like to share? No, I think we covered you know the m- most important information, maybe because I think you brought it out. You're, you surprised me with some of the questions, but you brought it out. You know, just I, I would just say you know being privileged to see the good in people to see surviving spouses do honor the wishes of their spouses 10, 20, 30 years after they died, to see people of next to no means say, I'm lucky. Most recently on a feasibility study, a fellow says to me, you know, we're giving away each year uh, uh, more than we spend on ourselves. He says to me, and he's incredibly successful, touching moment maybe to leave with, He says, but Jim, you know, this morning I looked at my wife and I said, I am so lucky. I got you. I got this great cup of coffee and we've got this beautiful view of this area. 
people are still out there like that. If you work hard, if you shake off the hard part about fundraising and you get an opportunity to meet someone like that, every tough moment, every unreasonable request, every sort of bureaucratic nightmare washes away because you have now been afforded the privilege of seeing the best in humanity. Keep looking for that and everything else falls into perspective and you realize how fortunate you are. And I'm very fortunate to spend time with you and I deeply appreciate what you're doing. You give me hope that rising generations will do things well and keep the honor of our profession and um, honor the best things in it. Wow. Well, Jim, this was amazing. That was an incredible ending uh, soliloquy. It could have been right out of Shakespeare. Um, (laughs) But yeah, seriously, thank you so much for coming on the show. Let people know where they can learn more about you and, you know, get access to to some of your stuff. Sure. I mean, my favorite platform is um, LinkedIn and hope you would join me there. I try to start conversations. I try to put out information that's useful, that's based on deep research and experience. Um, So let's keep the conversation alive about what this field is at its best and preserving the best in it and honoring the contributions that we're seeing coming in from so many practitioners giving of their time and honoring people like Kevin. So please join me in that agora, in that conversation, and let's figure out together how to learn from each other and bequeath more to our successors than we inherited from our predecessors. Indeed. Well, thank you so much, Jim. This was incredible. Look forward to talking soon. All the best. That was Jim Langley, president of Langley Innovations. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps the show uh, spread out to more people. So thank you for everyone who has left a rating and review. really means a lot. And as always, I hope this episode has inspired you to schedule more visits. After all, you're just one visit away from closing a $110 million gift.